This evening, uh, we're going to look at a psalm, Psalm 38 tonight, Psalm 38. This is a psalm of David, and it's a psalm that he is expressing great distress because of illness and linked to iniquity and many other than complicating factors that he expresses to the Lord. And we'll read it in its entirety here in just a moment, but in preparation for that, I just want to point out the structure that in verse 1, there's a cry to the Lord, and then verses 2 through 8, he lays out the situation that he's facing. Verse 9 is another cry to the Lord, and then the following verses uh, account for more details of his emotions during this trial. And then verse 15 is another cry to the Lord. And then at the end of the psalm is a final appeal to the Lord. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So verse 1, verse 9, 15, and 20, and 20, or 21 and 22. Uh, the psalmist, in the midst of his distress, is crying out to the Lord. So as we read that, just note those as he de- develops uh, what he is uh, crying out to the Lord about and his needs in this psalm. So we'll go ahead and read the psalm, beginning in verse 1, Psalm 38, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it is gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares, and those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear, and like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully, those who render me evil for good and accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. 
O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. The title for the message this evening is quite simple, A Cry for Help. A Cry for Help. I have a subtitle. It's not quite as long as a Puritan subtitle, but a subtitle is What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. The psalmist is dealing with overwhelmment. His iniquities have come over his head. He feels deaf and like he can't speak, and there's a paralysis because of the intensity of what he is dealing with. He's in a foggy mist of confusion in the midst of trial and dealing with his own heart, dealing with the added pressures of broken relationships and of those who oppose him and oppress him all around him. And in these times of distress, and the Psalms are such a a wonderful blessing for us, aren't they, in that they communicate the human elements of times when we're under extreme pressure and dealing with more than we think we can handle. And of course, the world has answers for these times, not solid answers, but they have answers. When you're so pressed and so despairing, there's the offer from the world to kill the pain with entertainment or exercise or just excessive activity Ecstasy by chemical relief, which obviously is continuing to grow even in our own country. And if it's really bad, the ultimate horrible solution, which is a non-solution to end it all, take your own life, get out. Those are the world's answers. And they're all around us pressing. The, the world says, if this is your condition, what is being expressed here in the psalm, the world says, escape, find a way out. There's a lot of ways that you can get out of this. You don't have to endure it. You can pleasure yourself out of the pain. But Scripture has a different Answer. And the answer is not escape. The contrast is be delivered. Be delivered. The world says escape. The word of God says, no, be delivered. Escape says, I'm in control, and if I feel like I'm not, I'm going to regain control by escaping. But deliverance by the Lord God says, no, God's in control. God's the one to whom I cry. God is the one who has brought this, and God is the one who in his time and way, if he should choose, will bring me out of this. I'm not in control. God is. Escape is fear-induced. Look at me. Look at what I can handle. Look how I can get out of things. Look how I can find relief on my own. Deliverance is peace-induced, peace in the midst of the storm. And it says, not look at me, but 
look at my God. Look at my God, even in the midst of the trial. Look at my God. When I pass through and out of the trial, look at the God who delivered me, who alone could secure such deliverance. And so as we come to look at this passage, we're we're looking at a godly man who is crying out in a time of deep distress, crying out to his God. And he lays out the extremities in verses 2 through 8, in verses 10 through 14, and in verses 16 through 20. But all throughout, he is injecting his cry with addresses to the Lord. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. I'm looking to you. So tonight, as we look at this psalm and the moments that we have together, I'm going to build uh, build the message more thematically and see some of the themes that come out in this psalm to counsel our hearts when we are faced with such distress, when we are pressed and do not know where to turn, when we don't know what to do, when we feel paralysis and can only cry to the Lord. So let's first of all just identify some sources of distress in this psalm. What are the sources of distress in this psalm? Well, the first is the hand of the Lord. Look at verses 1 and 2. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me. Your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. The psalmist is identifying the fact that this distress, this pressure, this condition, the the trials are from the hand of the Lord. And as he goes on and speaks of the sinfulness of his own soul, uh, one uh, commentator says that this psalm is a psalm of turning to a justly offended God. Turning to a justly offended God. He realizes that this is from God and he's willing even to take responsibility and know that whatever is coming from God and in God's discipline and the heaviness and, and the arrows and, and you know think about that picture there, arrows sinking into your flesh. This is painful, acutely painful. He realizes it's from the Lord, and he realizes that there is justice because God is holy, God is righteous, and the plea for mercy, do not Rebuke me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. It recognizes that God is righteously wrathful towards sin. God is righteously angry at the violation of his holiness. And so the psalmist, as he lays out his distress and his need, he recognizes, first of all, the hand of the Lord. He also recognizes and has an awareness of his personal iniquity. 
his personal iniquity. If we're thinking about the, the sources of his distress in this psalm, the hand of the Lord is heavy upon him. Verse three, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. He goes on in verse five, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. He's aware of his personal iniquity and, and what seems to be taking place in this psalm is that the, the psalmist David is, is dealing with some kind of illness. There's not really a record in what we have of David's life that we can correspond, you know, was it a particular time and a particular place? If we think about that time, illness was quite common. Uh, So likely it's an unrecorded time of illness, but whatever the physical affliction was seems to have uh, uncovered some areas of sin in David's life. He's connecting the, the illness that he's facing, the sickness, the weakness of his flesh with some sin that the Lord is dealing with him about. The sickness brought to light an underlying cause of sin. If you look at verse 5, he says, My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. And this is a a vivid description, uh, this idea of foolishness. It's a flaunting of morality, a silliness. And in, in his period of, of sickness, as his, as he describes it, my wounds stink and fester. He's, he's considering, he's examining his life and his heart, and he looks with grief on times of foolishness, times when he flaunted the law of God, times when he in silliness dismissed the seriousness of Scripture and the, the, the reality of who God was, the reality of living for God. And, and all of a sudden, right, all of a sudden now in, in this time of intensified pressure, that foolishness and that silliness, oh, it, it looks so trite when you're at the threshold of death. It's one of those, one of those verses where I, I wish, pastorally, I wish there was a way to take you young people and bring you to the threshold of eternity and bring you to a point of absolute helplessness because of some kind of illness and, and, and let you experience in that moment, in that extremity of need, how foolish it is to flaunt the law of God. How foolish it is to turn away from what God has established is his design for your life. 
Right, and it's not only children that need reminded and young people that need reminded of that, although that's when we're most eager to go our own way, isn't it? But we all need to be reminded of the, of the seriousness of life. And it's often in those times of sickness, in those times of pain, in those times of extremity, that the seriousness of life comes crashing in on us and he is expressing that my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. He's linking it even to the flaunting of the law of God. The psalmist is identifying the hand of God, the awareness of personal iniquity, and there's another source of distress that's magnified in this time of physical weakness, and that is opposition from other people. How true it is that when we're weak, any kind of opposition is just magnified. We feel absolutely helpless. Verse 12, those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all the day long. And then down in verse 19, my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully, those who render me evil for good and accuse me because I follow after good. So the primary sources of the distressing time that the psalmist is, is laying out before the Lord, is the hand of the Lord. Ultimately, the Lord is the one in control of the entire situation, an awareness of his own personal iniquity that is weighing on him, that the, the weakness, the sickness has brought to light, and the opposition that he's facing in the midst of this weakness from other people. And so there are three descriptions then of of a weakened condition. Again, we're just building the themes in this psalm, the sources and now the descriptions of the weakened condition. There's certainly some overlap. But in verses 3 through 8, in verse 18, there's illness related to iniquity. The description of a weakened condition, illness related to iniquity. This is actually classified as one of the penitential psalms. Right? David is acknowledging his sin. Again, we don't know the exact situation, but he's acknowledging his sin, and it's a sin that has been that has been uncovered, unearthed because of illness, illness related to iniquity. And verse 18, as he works through the, the, the distress, he says, I confess my iniquity and I'm sorry for my sin. Illness related to iniquity, he's sick, he's sick. A second description of his weakened condition In verses 11 through 14, he's isolated from companions. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. Verse 10, the light of my eyes, it's gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand afar off. 
And then in contrast, verse 12, those who seek my life lay their snares and those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. And just to emphasize how cut off he is, I'm like a deaf man, I do not hear, and like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I've become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. Isolation, he's alone. He's sick and he's alone. It's miserable, isn't it, to be sick and to be alone? And then in verses 19 and 20, again, my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And think of the contrast. Here I am laying out sick. I'm a, I, I can't move. There's no soundness in my flesh. But my foes, they're vigorous. They're energetic. They're mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully those who render me evil for good and accuse me because I follow after good. There's illness related to iniquity. He's sick. Isolation from companions. He's alone. Vulnerability before his enemies. He is oppressed. It's a combination that would bring collapse, would it not? Paralysis. Now, how should we think about this and, and just even as we think about it in terms of our own lives, stepping into some application here for a moment, particularly in the aspect of illnesses related to sin, related to iniquity. James Montgomery Boyce gives three excellent diagnostic questions, things to consider when we're sick and we're seeking to ascertain, you know, is this the hand of the Lord dealing with me in response to sin, a Hebrews 12 type situation where the Lord, like a father, is disciplining me, or is it something else? These are the questions that, that he offers, that Montgomery, James Montgomery Boyce offers. Have I sinned or gotten off track of obedience to what I know I should be doing? And is this setback God's way of getting me back on track into fellowship? We can expand that. Well, how, how do I figure out what I know I should be doing? Well, the answer is that Scripture is sufficient. The law of God is sufficient. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we think through what is it to love God with our entire being, what is it to love our neighbor as ourself, think about the imperatives in the epistles where the gospel so often in the first part of those epistles is clarified. This is what Christ has done in redeeming you and saving you and giving you new life in Christ as someone who's turned to him in repentance and faith. And now here's what it looks like to live as a new creature in Christ. Right? We, have, we have Scripture. We have the Word of God that, that deals with us and shows us the way of righteousness. And we, and we take the Word and we assess our lives and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. And see if there's any wicked way in me. 
Have I sinned or gotten off track of obedience to what I know I should be doing? And is this setback God's way of getting me on track and into fellowship? The second question Boyce offers is, is God using this to trim off some rough edges of my personality and develop a more Christ-like character in me? Is the Lord using this just to continue to form me into likeness to my Savior, Jesus Christ? Right? Not, in other words, not all illness, not all physical trial is directly related to something we're, we're sinning against God. There are times when God in His grace and His love to us is simply pressing us and molding us into the image of His dear Son. And then the third question, which is probably the most difficult to wrestle with, is God using my suffering as a stage upon which His name and wisdom may be glorified? Is it a place for me to show that I love him for who he is entirely apart from whatever material and physical benefits he may have given me? Let me read it again. It's it's a statement that is full of, of weighty considerations. Is God using my suffering as a stage upon which his name and wisdom may be glorified? Is it a place for me to show that I love him for who he is entirely apart from whatever material and physical benefits he may have given me? Does anybody come to your mind when you hear that statement? A man by the name of Job, perhaps? Here's a righteous man that God identifies. And God uses Job to display his authority, to display his goodness, to display his sovereignty. You know, we we know the end of Job as soon as we start Job 1.1. Job didn't. Job never got the explanation that we did, he learned to trust. And there are times that the Lord calls us to do just that, that the press of trial, the press of adversity, the press of sickness, the press of things that seem like there's nothing at the end is the opportunity of God displaying his grace and giving us the opportunity to show that we love him not because of what he does for us, not because of the good life, but because he is God and he first loved us and he sent his son to redeem us for himself. These are weighty matters to consider Well, moving back into the themes of this psalm, let's consider the result of the weakened condition, the results of the weakened condition. We've seen the sources of distress, descriptions of a weakened condition, and now the results. 
In verse 4, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. And then in verses 13 and 14, I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. One result of this weakened condition is is a sense of drowning. My iniquities have gone over my head. I'm, I'm drowning in my iniquities. They're so vast and and they're not only over my head, but it's like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. I'm, they're over me, and they're pulling me down all at the same time. And a drowning man is deaf. He can't hear. And he can't call out for help. A sense of drowning in the midst of the affliction. It's vivid. It's gripping. It resonates when God in his goodness and sovereignty over our lives puts us in these extremities. Sometimes you feel like you're drowning. Verse 17, we have another picture. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. The word fall is a word that you could also Gloss as stumble or fall or plunge. I'm on a precipice. I feel like I'm on a precipice of destruction. I'm ready to fall. And my pain is ever before me. I can't stop. In North Carolina, there's a hiking trail you can take up to Table Rock Mountain. I don't know why it's Table Rock, because it's rounded, but it's Table Rock. And you get up there, and there's a a rock face, and it's a beautiful view. But that rock, that rock slowly curves down. And there's a point of no return. In fact, I think now it's marked because people have passed that point of no return. But it's so gradual, you, you don't know exactly where it is until you're past it. And at that point, you're plunging down. You're not free-falling because there's still slope, but you can't stop. You're going to go over. And the psalmist is describing what he is facing in that way. I'm ready to fall. I'm on the precipice of destruction. I'm plunging over, about to just go head over heels into destruction. Feels like he's drowning. Feels like he's on a precipice of destruction. And then in verses 19 and 20, he's a man who loves God. Obviously, he's calling out to the Lord. He's aware of his sinfulness. He feels like he's drowning in his iniquities. And yet, my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully and those who render me evil for good and accuse me because I follow after good. Here he is aware of these things and yet seeking to follow good, seeking to do the right thing in the midst of these trying circumstances. And even when he's trying to do good, people are turning around and accusing him and rendering evil to 
him for the good that he's seeking to do. He feels like he can't do anything right. He feels like he's drowning. He feels like he's ready to plunge off a precipice of destruction. And he feels like he can't do anything right. It's a pretty desperate condition, isn't it? Well, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? Well, let's identify some wrong responses that are implied in this. Let's start with the negative. When that's the case, what are the wrong responses to such a weakened condition? Well, look to yourself is a wrong response. And how often is that the answer that's around us? Dig in deeper, whatever that means. Right? Find yourself. No. Folks, our culture, this is, this is what is behind the whole identity crisis within the global culture. It's the result of people saying, I need to find my identity. I need to identify me for who I am. I don't even know why we have YouTube. It should be MeTube. It's all about me. It's all about my identity. No, 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 no. And, and why is that? Well, think about what, what's already been confessed in this psalm. In verse 5, the psalmist is saying, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. Well, why would I look to myself if that's my condition? In verse 6, I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go, all the day I go about mourning. There's this sense that, that he's in a fetal position, all curled up, absolutely helpless, bowed down with sorrow and mourning. Verse 7, my sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. Burning with fever, fever, and, and, and you know when we when we face those times when when we're sick and we can't do anything about it, all of a sudden our mortality, we're confronted with that, and and we realize how weak we are. Why would I look to myself? It makes no sense. But our flesh wants to do that. Verse eight: I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Feeble and crushed, you know, what comes to mind is just a rag doll. I'm just limp. No strength. I'm a rag doll. This is the folly of the world. Be a better you. Look to yourself. No, I'm responsible for my misery. I'm full of sin and unsoundness. And to look to myself is like a dog returning to his vomit or a pig going back to wallow in the mud. No, the answer has to be outside. Look to yourself is a wrong response. Another wrong response is look to other people. Look to other people. Now, a caveat, certainly God places people in our lives to be a blessing and to be a support, to to point us to the Lord. The one and other passages, the 50 plus of those in the New Testament, right? But 
But ultimately, my satisfaction cannot be in other people. Look at verse 11. My friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kens stand far off. Here he is in his most pressing time of distress, and those closest to him, those that he would expect to, to be the support to him, they're standing afar off. Other people will always let you down. And a professor that would remind freshmen, your roommate is not your best academic advisor, no matter how many extra semesters they spent in college. And that's kind of what we do, isn't it? We look to other people, but we're looking to people who are failing like us and who will fail and who will let us down and who will ultimately die. No, we, we don't find our answers in other people. Our family is wonderful. Our families are important, but family is not our salvation. God is our salvation. And it's so critical that in this day that values relationships so highly, which has benefit, that we not put relationships on the pedestal of idolatry. If I just had the right relationships, if I just had the right people in my life, then things would be the way I want them to be. It would, it would be better for me. No, 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 no. The satisfaction is not found. The answer is not found in people. Praise God for people but they're not the answer. So what are the godly responses? All right, and I've, I've raised the question, what do you do when you don't know what to do? And I really haven't answered it yet. So now, now, now we'll, we'll answer it. What are the godly responses? What do we do in this time? Well, verse 18, if, if again, in the context of verses 3 through 8, as the psalmist acknowledges his iniquity, verse 18 gives us the first response. I confess my iniquity and I'm sorry for my sin. Right? If, that, if sickness and illness has revealed an underlying issue of sin, I need to deal with my sin. And this is so important because so often when we're pressed with, with, the, with, with the intensity of trials, it's, it's easy for us because it's built into our fleshly nature. It's easy for us to, to get into a victim mentality of, you know, I just, I just need some help out of this and to overlook the fact that we need to confess our sin, we need to confess our sin to the Lord. We're still sinners even when we're really sick and really oppressed. And we need to confess that to the Lord and acknowledge that before Him as the psalmist does. But then what we find throughout the psalm in verse 1, verse 9, verse 15, verses 21 and 22, address your distress to the Lord. 
Address your distress to the Lord. Ultimately, ultimately, this is from his hand, is it not? Again, Psalm or verse 2, your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. I recognize that God is sovereign. He is the one that has overseen this whole thing. And so I'm going to address my distress to the Lord. In verse 1, the psalmist is, is simply requesting God's mercy. Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. It's right for us to recognize and glory in the attributes of who God is and, and pray for his mercy. Lord God, you are holy and you are righteous and I am sinful and I'm impure. Oh God, everything that, everything that you're pouring on me right now, I, I deserve. I've offended a righteous God and, and even as your child in Christ, I've gone against my father. Lord, be merciful to me. Lord, be merciful. In Psalm 3, David is crying out for God's help in the midst of his discipline from Absalom, discipline that God said would happen to David because of his sin. He's in the midst of what God said God would bring, and he cries out for God's mercy. We can always cry out to our God for mercy. We must always cry out to our God for mercy. Even when there's a sense that what we're getting is what is just, and knowing that God is just, we cry out for his mercy in the midst of our extreme trials. Look at verse 9. O Lord, my longing is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. Here, David is confessing God's complete knowledge. Oh, this is a comfort. Lord, here I am, and impressed by sin, pressed by these circumstances. I'm calling out for your mercy. I'm crying out to you, but ultimately, Everything is before you. My longing, what I desire is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. Lord, you know all of these things. You are God. And I confess that before you. And then in verse 15, verse 15, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. David requests God's mercy. He confesses God's complete knowledge, and he commits to wait for God's answer. I wait for you, O Lord. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. I can't speak. I'm deaf. I'm dumb. I have no words. The, the trial is drowning me. But I'm looking to you, Lord. I'm looking to you for deliverance. 
You're the one who will answer for me even when I'm oppressed by enemies that are vigorous and mighty. I'm weak, I'm undone, I can do nothing. Lord, I wait for you, you must intervene, you must answer. I'm committing myself entirely into your hands. It's a commitment to not take matters into your own hands, not necessarily a commitment to do nothing, But in this situation, whatever it is, I'm not going to take the worldly escape routes. I'm going to let God be my deliverer. And when we think about who God is and think about the theology that is behind this, O Lord, Yahweh, the self-existent, eternal God of the universe, It's for you I wait. We're speaking to the one who is already on the other side of the trial. He's already there. He already has figured it out. He inhabits the answer. And so I wait for him to bring me to that end, whatever it is. And then finally in verses 21 and 22, Plead for God's delivering presence. Plead for His delivering presence. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. And why is that? Well, Micah 7:18 and following, our God is a pardoning God. And even when the distress is, is demonstrating and revealing the underlying, some underlying sin that God is dealing with me about, I cry out for his delivering presence. I cry out for him to not forsake me. I cry out for him to make haste. I cry out with urgency because he alone is my salvation. And God God answers. There are many, many accounts in David's life that we do have of God delivering him. And one of those accounts, I won't have us turn there this this evening, but I'll just, if you want to jot it down, and it would be a great account to spend some time meditating on in 1 Samuel 23. I think it's in verse 14. God says that he delivered David from Saul's hand. And then in the following verses, it looks like that's not happening. (laughs) It looks like David's falling into Saul's hand. But right when Saul is about ready to pounce, a messenger comes and says the Philistines are about to attack and Saul goes, and David's delivered. We already knew at the beginning that God had promised to deliver David. The story didn't look like it was going to end that way, but at the end, God kept his word. And there are times in our lives as we follow Christ, as we seek to live for the Lord, we, we know the promises. We know what God has done. We know the goodness of God. We have the statements. 
but it looks different. But God doesn't change, and God doesn't go back on his word. And he will always deliver. And for the believer, the ultimate, the ultimate comfort is a statement like what Paul says in Ephesians, look, you are already seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's your position. That's your position. And there's coming a day where I'm going to be there. And the Lord will deliver me from all the distresses. He will deliver me from all the weaknesses. And I'll be there worshiping and serving my God because of my Savior, Jesus Christ, for all eternity. That is our glorious hope. And as we live and wrestle with what God brings into our lives to teach us, to draw us to himself, and as we learn to trust in him, God is the one. God is the one who then receives all the glory for the deliverances that he alone secures. And I know that that is the heart cry of those that are a part of this body who face such trials, such pressing trials, that whatever it is God has brought into your life, whatever it is that, that you are crying out to him for help for, that ultimately God, God will lead, God will teach God will be your God, he will deliver, and ultimately he will receive the glory for whatever deliverance he alone secures for you. The points of confusion, frustration, and feeling trapped are situations where God is intent in bringing glory to his own name. And by his grace, we can respond in the strength of Christ we can respond in the strength of David's Lord, the one who kept entrusting himself to his father all the way to and through the cross. Where sin binds and guilt, we confess and repent. We turn to the Lord for cleansing and forgiveness. We cry out to him with absolute trust in his goodness, his care, and his loving kindness for us that he's revealed to us in his word. Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are true and that you are just. We thank you that you love us and that you work all things together for our good. Lord, may we constantly hold your goodness before us. May we constantly hold our Savior before us as we walk through whatever you lay in our path to conform us to the image of Christ for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.